Hello and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Daily Pravda. I think we, no matter what, need to be doing everything practically at our power to get people out of Afghanistan that want to leave the country. This is how Marisa Siegel, a professor of migration studies at Maastricht University and the United Nations University Merit, sees the current situation in Afghanistan. We also discussed what kind of coordinated approach the European Union and its partners should take to help the Afghans and how not to talk about migration. Did the West give millions of Afghans hope and now everything is probably lost? Our interview took place before the attack outside Kabul's airport on August 26 that killed at least 169 Afghans and at least 13 US service members. Listen to our conversation. Europe get ready for a huge number of refugees coming from Afghanistan, taking into account what's going on in the country? I guess the the key point here lies on should. Let's be clear. The current situation in Afghanistan is not good. Um, the Taliban have taken over the country by force. They were not democratically elected in any regard. They are not they were not chosen by the people. And we know from history, I mean, we know from um, past experience with the Taliban that the situation of the people is likely to be very, very poor. Human rights violations are likely to be rampant, and the people who are likely to be most affected are going to be women and girls, but not only. I think we need to uh, also be clear about that, that they're not the only ones that are going to be affected. They're just likely to be even more negatively affected. I would say that people fleeing Afghanistan today absolutely are fleeing under what we would consider, you know, serious grounds uh, for concern, definitely things that would fall under the 1951 convention. So I think what we should, since you use the term should, what we should be doing is, well, evacuating people as quickly as possible, not only, you know, nationals from European countries. Now I'm talking very much in a European perspective, because of course I could talk more globally, but not only nationals from European countries, but we also need to be evacuating any Afghans that have been helping what's really important to to recognize is that that the Taliban don't make a difference if you were, for instance, in a military context. They don't make a difference if you were an interpreter or if you were in the military compared to if you were a cook working for the German government. Okay, you were working for the foreign forces, you were doing this, there's, you know, there's not a difference there. So I think some of these very arbitrary distinctions that European governments are talking about right now, well, should we just take interpreters? Let's only take people who are working for our countries for a sustained period of time, because those are the ones that will be the most in danger. You know, what is a sustained period of time? What does a long period of time mean? What does, you know, I think they're splitting hairs on things that the Afghans, that the Taliban will not be splitting hairs on. Um, and I find it a, almost a, a ridiculous conversation to be having. They should be evacuating as many people as possible um, that have been put in danger also by virtue of just being associated with these foreign governments. But that wouldn't be a small number of people. Look, 
in in every policy um, in the world, you're you're either going to have an inclusion error or an exclusion error. No policy can perfectly pinpoint every single quote unquote deserving person. So you have to decide for your own government, for your own political situation, are you more comfortable with an exclusion error, that meaning leaving people out who are deserving or more comfortable with an inclusion error? So taking on more people that are deserving. So what path do you think the rest of governments will take? An inclusion one or exclusion? I personally think they're going to take exclusion. I think there are going to be differing degrees of this. So you already see that, for instance, the United States, also the the government and the force that was most prominent, um, is being the most open to having a more open criteria for many of these things where other governments have been more closed. Um, So the Dutch government was previously very closed and said, you know, we're only going to take translators, but they've just recently decided in, uh, um, in their parliament that they will open this up. But, you know, a lot of these opening up, it's very unclear. There's so much unclarity now around who they're gonna take and who they're not. And this is just people who've worked for the foreign forces, right? Or foreign governments. Many other people are in danger and in need. And if we want to not have a repeat of, let's say, you know, 2014, 15 and 16 in Europe, what we need to be doing is already thinking well in advance. These are people with serious asylum claims. It is clear that Iran and Pakistan, the two countries who have um previously hosted the largest numbers of Afghans for decades, let's be clear about that, are not as willing to take more on, which really means that the best way to make sure that we have well-managed migration is that European governments should be directly resettling Afghans First, like giving them very clear humanitarian corridors, but also people that are kind of in makeshift refugee camps, they need to be resettling them as soon as possible because it's clear that the situation is going to stay dire for some time. And if they don't do it in a well-managed way, it's going to end up in a very unmanaged way. But is it at least somehow manageable? We all see chaotic scenes from the Kabul airport. And the Taliban said that troops that support evacuation efforts must leave by August 21st. Taliban takeover was unexpectedly quick. But for example, my personal estimate was that they will be in Kabul by the beginning of October. And for sure I am not the only journalist that in the past weeks has asked the Western governments about a more coordinated approach regarding evacuating people and helping Afghans. Not that much has been done. Can we really manage the situation now? It's a chaotic situation now. So we're not in a good, well-managed situation. And you're absolutely right that once again, European governments like to stick their head in the sand and pretend that things aren't happening that are actually happening. Um, I think so often we see politicians and political leaders, you know, trying to distance themselves as much. I mean, okay, it's a political hot topic. So what you see is that they're only reacting and not being proactive. And I, they should have learned, um, you know, from what already happened, you know, uh, um, what, seven, eight years ago, that you need to take a proactive approach to protection, not a proactive approach to border enforcement. And I am gravely disappointed, but to honestly not surprised, 
to see a similar thing going on again. And you're right that now to do this in a very well-managed way is probably somehow unrealistic. What they need to be doing is putting pressure on like Pakistan, Iran to keep their borders open with the promise that people will then be resettled. Because one of the reasons that you know, Pakistan and Iran don't want to do that. It's because they're afraid that they're going to end up, you know, hosting two, three, four, five million people, which is a huge load for those countries. And I think if they could get some serious reassurances from European governments and others, you've just asked me about the European context, though, now, I think they would be much more willing to keep their borders open. I think a coordinated approach is the best in that, you know, multiple countries working together are giving these assurances to Pakistan and uh, um, Iran. Absolutely. I mean, there are other countries who have been very gracious and been very helpful in this whole process. So many people are being evacuated via Doha. Qatar needs to be given some credit here for really working closely with um, with European governments and North American governments to try to help evacuate people as quickly as possible. But more needs to be done like this. Um, we can't expect every, everyone to be able to leave by planes from Kabul airport. There just isn't the capacity for that, given the time frame we have. Right. Let's just be realistic, which means land borders are going to need to be used. Um, so we also need to be very realistic about that. Do we have any estimate? How many Afghans might try to leave the country and how many might try to get to Europe? Okay, that's a million dollar question. I mean, I think we can look at, you know, historical things. So um, I think the number of people that want to leave right now are in the millions. That that's for sure. Whether or not they're going to be able to leave, whether or not they're going to be able to fly out or get across borders or whatever. That's another question. And then how many of those people that actually manage to get out of the country, how many of them will actually end up in Europe is is another question. But let's be clear. Um, Europe has a very large absorptive capacity. Europe is a large land space with, um, you know, very high levels of development comparatively to to other countries in the world, as is, you know, United States and Canada and other countries. I don't want to say that everything should be put on Europe. But I also think that Europe historically has not really, let's say, done their part, especially not all countries within Europe have not done their part according to, I would say, their capabilities. Um, you know, a country like Slovakia has an extremely low immigrant population, uh, hosts extremely low numbers of refugees, and is absolutely a country um, that could do more. It's not the only one. I don't want to only point out Slovakia, um, but definitely it, it could be doing more. By the way, Slovakia has a small but a very well integrated Afghan community. And there is an estimate that around 250 people in Afghanistan right now have a clear connection to Slovakia and they might be in need of help. Slovakia is a country of 5.5 million people. Do you think that helping 250 Afghans is enough? So I would say at least 250 for sure. No, I think the country should and can do more, honestly. You have other countries with populations of around uh, um, 5 million that are hosting a million refugees. I'm not suggesting right now, let me be clear, that Slovakia currently needs to take in one million. I'm just saying that the precedent is there and that it is possible for a country with the same population size and actually perhaps a higher level of GDP than some of the other countries to actually be, be, be doing this. Absolutely. If you say that Slovakia should and could do more, I will come back to this question of coordination. Some European countries are openly saying 
that they are not going to take any Afghan refugees. This is a position of Austria. Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz said that in the past his country took disproportionate number of refugees, also from Afghanistan. So what kind of coordinated approach we might have? Don't you think that Europe might simply try to build more walls to stop Afghan refugees? I am not even very optimistic that the EU will be able to establish a functioning resettlement scheme at least for some number of Afghan refugees. And I'm not going even to guess the number because it's probably impossible. I think you have you make some some very good points. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think I share your um, your predictions or concerns. I understand where Austria is coming from in that they have done a lot previously. I still think they're a country that could also do more. But it's a race to the bottom when every country says, well, I'm not going to do more because I did a lot last time and other people aren't doing things. This is, you know, putting certain priorities amongst above others. They're putting, you know, fairness of number allocations above, you know, fairness of humanitarian situations. I mean, is it fair that just because I took more last time and you didn't that we should now tell that person whose life is in danger that you can't come in now? I mean, I think we're putting the wrong priorities in front of others. But you're right that some countries are using this as an excuse. So I think if we could get the European countries to work better together to agree on a fair, quote unquote, um, burden sharing, quote unquote, I also don't like to talk about refugees as burdens. I don't think that's the right way to to talk about this. But um, since this is, let's say, a concern, since it is something discussed in politics, if we could get countries to agree to a fair allocation I think that this would also go a lot further and not allowing some countries to kind of cop out by saying, well, they're not doing it, so we're not going to do it, which I find is like, what are we, five years old? I mean, our leaders of governments, have they rapidly, um, you know, changed to turn into kindergartners? Because that is the kind of explanations they are using. They are not being caregivers. They are not being parents. They are not being the ones you look to for advice and support and doing the right thing. They are acting like children. Talking about this. uh, this, (laughs) You can uh, quote me on that. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to. But talking about political rhetoric in Austria, in July, the 13-year-old girl was murdered there and three Afghans were arrested with the connection to this crime. How do you think that politicians should frame the debate about migration when something like that happened, like in Austria? Because that case was clearly used and misused in the debate about migration. Yeah, okay. So to be honest, I'm not so familiar with this case. But as I understand it, a 13-year-old girl was murdered and it is suspected, at least, um, that three Afghan nationals had some part in this. I am really not um, aware of the case, but let's just say that that's the case. Um, I think you don't need to pretend like this didn't happen. I think we need to be honest about what happens, but I also think you need to put things in perspective. The majority majority of criminals still in Austria are Austrians. And I think what's problematic about this is, is that it is highlighted when a refugee or an immigrant does something wrong And it is not put into perspective of, look, in any country group, you're going to have criminals and people that don't do what they should. All right. In any country, you're going to have murderers. Every country in Slovakia, in Austria, in the United States, in the Netherlands, whatever. 
Of course, we'd like to keep this as small as possible and prevent as much as possible. But you need to be realistic about the fact that this is not by virtue of being Afghan. These are just some bad seeds. And uh, I think the media also needs to be here um, responsible and again, putting that in perspective, not plastering all over the news. Afghans did this, Afghans did that, because this is three Afghans, you know, in a very large population. So I think we need to be very careful there because then immediately people are, you know, are going to start associating being Afghan with doing really terrible things, which is absolutely not the case for the majority of the population. Just like, you know, if if an American, you know, kills someone in Slovakia, I would hope that not everyone would think I am also in a murderer because I am American. Yeah, I think you're right. We shouldn't be doing such a general statements towards any community. Look, you know, we've seen uh, migration from Afghanistan over a longer period of time also to Europe, but we've also seen intensification in certain periods. Often also the ones that end up in Europe in a legal way are, quote unquote, the lucky ones. Let me be clear. They're not lucky people. They've probably they've seen a lot of terrible things in their life and dealt with a lot of um, terrible things, but they have made it to Europe and they're able to at least attempt to rebuild their lives. Sometimes they are given more assistance in doing that than others. And I would say sometimes they're almost actively discouraged by the general population and policy. But that depends on country by country. Um, I think the majority of Afghans in Europe are just doing their best to rebuild their lives, to live a meaningful life, to get a decent education, to work hard. Um, you know, I've done a lot of research on Afghans um, in Europe. I, I, you know, I have actually Afghans that also work for me at the United Nations University. And I can just say that what and I've, I've done a lot of work in Afghanistan also there. And and, you know, they are hardworking and just like anyone else trying to do the best they can for their families while always having, you know, their haunting experiences that they've had previously and still knowing that many of their loved ones are in Afghanistan or Pakistan or somewhere else, um, you know, with much fewer opportunities and really, really difficult situations. I know right now from my Afghan colleagues that are here in Europe that they are just devastated and tormented every day and feeling completely helpless that they cannot do more for their relatives and their family members who are stuck in Afghanistan. Um, and I think there's a lot of guilt that comes with that, too. You know, I've heard journalists talking about that, too, that they're when they're covering the situation in Afghanistan. Now, when they leave, the hardest thing for them is the guilt, knowing that they're able to leave and go on about their lives, leaving behind millions of people in a terrible situation. And I think there's also a lot of guilt feelings. Um, you know, which I don't think needs to be not not rightly so. But I think that people are so aware of uh, of their privilege and you really taking trying to take full advantage of the opportunities that they they have in Europe. Let's say the EU with the partners will be able to establish some resettlements program. Should we prioritize women? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I personally would prioritize women and children. But that is not to say that other people are not in bad situations. But as I said before, since it's so clear also that at this point, like women's lives have just been taken from them. I mean, the Taliban says things like we'll let women work, we'll let them do these things, but they won't just let them do those things. Right. Women are not going to have the same rights. Women are already, you know, burqas in Kabul are completely sold out now just because people are terrified. That means that they cannot live in the way that they did previously. You know, women can't just be out like walking on the street. 
we've heard so many stories of girls that were in university burning all of their burning their books, burning anything that made an association with them having, you know, having uh, um, done so much learning in a way being so empowered because they're terrified at the retribution. And, and you're also hearing young women today saying if the Taliban knocks on our door, like we have packs among all of us girls that have gone to university and we will kill ourselves before the Taliban take us to be wives. That is terrifying, right? These women who a year ago had hopes and dreams and were investing in their future and today are terrified that they're basically, you know, going to become the sex slave of, uh, of a Taliban fighter. Um, I think most women in that situation would also prefer to kill themselves. So I think that we're, there's such a dire situation here. And I, I think we have to be very careful to not, not take the Taliban's word for anything, right? We, we need, we want to hope that they've reformed. We want to give them chances to prove that they have. But um, uh, I think we also need to be realistic and proactive. And again, not stick our hands in, in the sand and be reactive, but get women out of there as quickly as possible. How much we should try to talk to the Taliban about this? And of course, also about other related issues. Well, I think we need to be realistic. I don't think we need to legitimize the Taliban as the legitimate government of the country, but I do think we need to be realistic that they are the ones currently in control. And that being said, then I think we, the West governments, need to be in touch with them and need to talk to them to be able to practically get people out of the country. And I also think that it's the, the Taliban have also changed a bit over time. <laughs> I don't want to say that they have completely evolved. No, not at all. But they actually care about legitimacy um, internationally. Um, they care about being seen as the legitimate rulers of the country. Um, and that does give uh, um, the Western world some leverage, some bargaining power. But I do think that we don't need to be friends with them by any means. Um, but I do think that if, quote unquote, working with them, um, I want to be careful in how I'm using that term, but at least being in contact or whatever helps us to get more people out, helps us to save lives, helps us to reduce um, persecution. I think we have to do that pragmatically. Do you think that the biggest failure of the 20 years war in Afghanistan is the fact that we gave probably millions of people, women, young people, children, hope, and now this is probably all lost? I don't think you need to ever apologize for giving people hope if it was legitimately given at the time. Was it? Well, I think that was the intention. I mean, I, I don't think the idea was let's give this population of young people hope and then purposefully turn the tables on them. I mean, I don't think that was not the intention. All right. I, for sure. I mean, you can definitely criticize the way things have been handled, um, intelligence, how things have actually happened on the ground. But that was never the intention to give people hope and then dash it. Right. I mean, no, uh, for sure not. What I do think that has been very good over the last 20 years is that the Taliban are also they've changed a bit, but the people have also changed. And uh, the Taliban, you know, the, the the population that the Taliban ruled, you know, uh, um, 20 years ago, 25 years ago is not the population today. And if they want to 
rule in some kind of peaceful way and still have a population to control, let's say, they're probably going to need to make some concessions or at least publicly to the international community. I also think they don't, the Taliban doesn't want another situation of the international community finding a reason to enter the country again, which is why I also think that they're going to be a bit careful about doing things outside of their borders. And they might be a little bit more careful about things within their borders getting a lot of media attention. So there, I definitely still think there's absolutely a role for international observers, for international media to be, you know, holding the Taliban to account, holding them to account for promises they have also made in negotiations in Doha and uh, and things they have said now in, in press conferences. I think it's a strange and surreal thing to see the Taliban giving international press conferences. But um uh, I think this gives the international community a chance to hold them to account also. I think you are right. I believe that Taliban want to avoid the repeat of the situation after 9-11 attacks 20 years ago. On the other hand, they're not going to cut all ties with groups like Al-Qaeda because they are connected personally via marriages and so on. So this is really unrealistic to expect that they will simply cut all ties. But we have been talking about a couple of issues. So maybe in wrapping up, what would be your advice or two for international community? How to help the Afghans who are in need of help? Yes, we might have limited resources, limited time, probably also limited political will. But still, what would be your one or two advices how to help them. So this is one, a time for solidarity and for taking responsibility. Um, I think we need to make sure that there's a very clear humanitarian corridor out of Afghanistan, even after um, the end of this month, even after the official pullout date, which means borders need to be kept open. And uh, the international community and Western governments need to have a serious plan for relocating people. I think this is also not the time to go through a bunch of heavy administrative procedures. I think you can you know, do a blanket just refugee status. I don't think you need to be doing separate status determination for each individual person. I mean, we know the situation in Afghanistan, and I think um, you could do really rapid processing of people also. I think a lot of governments have very cumbersome and bureaucratic procedures for refugees, which really need to be streamlined and can be. I mean, UNHCR has all kinds of streamlined procedures um, also for these things. So um, there's no excuse there. I think you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And I think we just need the will to be there to make the way happen. But talking about will, it seems that the foreign troops will leave Kabul airport by the end of the month. And what if Taliban will also say that people cannot leave their country via borders with Pakistan or Iran? What then? Should all our efforts be finished? Well, I mean, I don't think it should be finished. I mean, as far as I think we in a more preferable situation, we would we, the international community, would stay until every person that wanted to leave was out. That that would be the practical solution. The Taliban, at least previously publicly, have said the international community needs to leave by this date. 
However, anyone that has, you know, official documents and whatever can leave later on commercial airlines. We don't know if they will keep to that. Absolutely not. I mean, we hope so. And we and if that's the case, we need to make sure that those people are, are, you know, issued papers as quickly as possible so they can hopefully get on commercial flights and hopefully commercial flights are actually flying or charter flights or whatever. Um, to leave. I mean, that's that's one option for after the military pullout. If the Taliban keeps this promise that people can actually still leave with the right papers. The other option is that people are going to have to try to get out on foot across porous borders, even with borders being closed. We know that there are ways that people can get out. These are not easy. They are often dangerous and it won't be possible for the majority. But what we need to do is then, I think, help to facilitate that across the land borders. Well, do you think that by the end of the month, soldiers should leave Kabul airport or? That's a very difficult call to make. I also don't have all of the intelligence on, on the ground, yeah, course, you know, yeah. right? I mean, I don't know everything that the U.S. military knows. So I want to also be careful about making those calls when I don't have all the information they do. I think the should there really depends on what the consequences are of them staying. And if if the consequences of them staying turn into a full out fight where probably a lot of civilians will also get killed, I'm not sure that that's the right avenue. I'm also not um, a military general, probably not the person who is best equipped to answer these to answer, you know, a, a question uh, um, uh, around that but i i think we no matter what need to be doing everything practically in our power to get people out of the country that want to leave the country this was another episode of my podcast the global agora subscribe listen on spotify google podcast and on the other platforms thank you for listening and stay tuned mm-hmm.